0: We are back for our final Sasta episode of 2019 with me, Harry Stebbings. For all things behind the scenes, do check out at hstebbings1996 with two B's on Instagram. It would be great to see you there. But to the show's day, And as promised, we feature the most downloaded VC guest of 2019. And it will be little surprise on this one. The industry all reads his work and it's a staple for so many founders and execs. And so with that, I'm very proud to welcome Tom Tungas as the number one spot this year for VC. As a brief catch up, Tom is a general partner at Redpoint Ventures. The firm he joined in 2008 and has since led investments in the likes of Customer, Looker, Expensify and Gremlin, all prior guests on the show I hasten to add. He's also the co-author of Winning with Data, exploring the cultural changes big data brings to business. As a result of these many successes, Tom's also been named on the Forbes Mida Sprint list. But before we move into the show's date, if there's one thing I suck at, it's organisation and that's always around expenses for me. Keeping receipts, losing them, taking photos months later, oh it's a nightmare. And then we started using Plio and it enables employees to buy what they need for work with no fuss and no more out-of-pocket purchases. Plus, you take the photo of the receipt in real time, so you don't even need to keep the receipt. And the design is beautiful. Genuinely, it makes it quite fun. Clearly, I need to get out more given I just said that. But don't take my word for it. More than 5,000 European companies use Plio, from Vina Media to Voy and Byron, and you can check them out today. And for SaaS to listeners only, Plio are saying, hey, go on your next business lunch paid for by Plio, and they give you £50 on the Plio card to trial. Genuinely, I absolutely love it and you can check it out today at plio.io forward slash Saster. However, metrics are key to every business and misreported metrics are damaging. Missed revenue opportunities and multiplying process inefficiencies. Does that sound familiar? Well, everyone in your go-to-market org is punching above their weight, yet no needle is moving nearly as fast as it should. Each morning you wake up with the three big questions, increasingly hard to answer revenue questions that is. How do we sustain the revenue we're bringing in? How do we identify more avenues to grow revenue? And how can we get real-time visibility into the the cracks and fissures of the revenue engine. If that's you, it's exceedingly likely that your revenue infrastructure and processes are headed towards a dreaded natural conclusion, or rather a tangle, a huge bowl of sass spaghetti. That diagnosis screams of a revenue operations problem. You can head on over to chargebee.com to learn more about how to battle these inefficiencies in your revenue engine, and if you want to untangle your revenue operations with Chargebee, use Harry25 at checkout and get 25% off your plan. That's Harry2525. And for- Finally, thanks to my friends at WePay. Let me introduce you to another super cool player in the space, Invaluable, the world's leading online marketplace to fine art, antiques, and collectibles. Auction houses, galleries, and dealers use Invaluable to grow their businesses and connect more people around the world with the things they love. And it works with more than 5,000 auction houses globally, including Sotheby's and Phillips. And Sotheby's is actually using them as their core technology partner for online bidding on all of its auctions. And you can learn more today at Invaluable.com. But you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, that's quite enough from me. So now I'm very excited to welcome our most downloaded VC episode of 2019, Tom Tunger's general partner at Redpoint Ventures. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Tom, what can I say, my friend? It is so awesome to have you back. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. So a huge thank you for putting up with these dulcet British tones once again.
1: Thank you so much for having me back on the
0: show, Harry. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Well, not at all, but I want to kick off today with a little bit about you for those that maybe missed our first discussion. So how did you make your way into the world of VC and come to be a GP today at RepPoint?
1: I had a security journey when I was about 17. I got my first taste of startups. I started a little legal software company with my dad in South America. And then I went to work after college and grad school. I went to work at a startup in Washington, D.C. called Appian that went public two or three years ago we were building business process management software and then I went to work at Google for about three years as a product manager in ads and then I joined Redpoint almost 11 years ago and it's been an amazing journey it's such a privilege to be investing in all these wonderful companies well from and, uh,
0: illegal software in Brazil to Redpoint that is uh, it's a unique journey so I, I love that description but today Tom I want to focus on an incredible survey that you did with regards to free trials and their subsequent effects on how many different parts of both the kind of the financial growth and and condition of a SaaS company happen. Does that work well for you?
1: Absolutely. I'd be thrilled to talk about it. Thank you.
0: So let's get the ball rolling today with number one, annual contracts dominate. So what were the learnings with regards to the relationship and prominence of annual contracts in relation to free trials?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. Let me take a step back. So we ran a a free trial survey because we found that in most of our startups, many of them at all different price points, even starting around 1K is obvious, but going up to 150K ACV, they're running... free trials as part of their marketing campaign. And a lot of the disciplines or the best practices around those free trials aren't really well known. So we sent out a survey and we got about 600 responses back. And so these results or what I'll be talking about the results from that survey. So we published a presentation about the 10 learnings of the free trials. And the first one, as you said, Harry, is around annual contracts. One of the questions that came up was if I'm at a small price point or a big price point, should I tie my free trial to an annual contract, a month to month contract or a multi-year contract? And what we found is for most companies, about 80% in the 50%, to 50K ACV range use annual contracts, and that tends to be the standard. And so what you do find is in the SMB, some of the companies tie the free trials to month to month, and then in the enterprise, some of them tie them to multi-year deals, but there's actually no impact on conversion rate from the free trial to a paid customer as a function of the contract value. Oh, if you're an SMB, the data suggests that transitioning your customers from a month to month to an annual shouldn't have any impact on your conversion rate, and we all know that an annual contract paid up front is much better for your business because you're basically borrowing money from your customer and you can reinvest that cash to grow
0: absolutely in my word I can tell I'm going to enjoy this episode but you said that about multi-year I had David Scott on the show before and he said that unless multi-year contracts are paid up front you're merely shifting the burden from customer success to accounting how do you think about this and is that a fair sumization
1: the way that we think about multi-year contracts is at the beginning you don't necessarily want to sign lots of multi-year contracts because on one hand they're really compelling events and they show a lot of commitment from your customers. But on the other hand, you want to go through a couple of renewal cycles really early on in the business to determine whether or not there are meaningful churn risks in the company. And so going going to a multi-year contract actually kind of deprives you of that opportunity and that learning experience.
0: I, I totally yeah. agree with you there. You mentioned the element of churn and really kind of seeing that repeatability through those cycles. Dave Kellogg on the show said in the case of multi-year contracts, calculating churn is much more complicated. How do you approach this and what do you advise founders?
1: Well, it's tough because you can, you can construct a multi-year contract in a bunch of different ways. You can, let's say we work for a startup and we sign a multi-year deal that's worth $3 million, and we can structure it in a way that the customer has a 90-day out or has an out after the end of each year. The way that you're going to calculate churn on that is going to be very different because if you're 90 days out, you're only going to book the first three months of revenue. And then the remaining 33 months, does that count as churn? Does it not? Whereas if you have a three-year deal with one-year outs, you could look at each contract separately. So I think the simplest way to do it it is really to look at each year as a separate contract and try to structure the contract in that way so that you can rationalize churn based upon acv and then you can compare apples to apples or if you're comparing a three-year tcv deal to three one-year deals or a collection of one-year deals then your churn rates are all going to look the same and you can make judgments because what you're really trying to do with that churn number is look across the entire customer base or look across the entire tcv multi-year deal customer base and make a determination about whether or not your product is a good fit there and so it's really important to normalize
0: Absolutely. And we're trying to minimize churn and retain as many customers as possible. And that moves us to the second, which is now we have the clients signed up and we need to keep them retention. Number two was aim for 90% logo retention. Talk to me, Tom. What was the findings on logo retention from the survey?
1: Yeah, we found about a third of respondents retained 90% or more of their logos, which was much higher than we thought. So the companies targeting enterprise and mid-market customers retained much better their logos than the SMB. So about 45% of the respondents in the enterprise retained 90 90% or better and about 37% in the mid-market. But if you look at the SMB, you only have about 23% in that upper quintile, which was surprising to me, about 20% of companies in the SMB churning more than 40% of their logos, which is a very difficult place to be.
0: Absolutely, it is. Now, this is a very unfair question, but you've worked with some <laughs> of the very best task companies and founders. What do you think the best do so well in terms of retention?
1: I think it's different in different segments. So in the SMB, the SMB tends to be predominantly a product-driven segment. Sale. And so the SMB is really focused on ensuring that the onboarding is really quick and smooth, and it's almost entirely product driven. The other thing that's really critical there is getting to longer term contracts in order to show value. And then the last thing is really around showing ROI. In the enterprise and mid market, you can afford to spend much more on customer success, particularly at the beginning. So at the series A, what we often advise companies to do is to, you know, in the enterprise, you can actually use professional services in order to smooth over the divots in the product. And order to increase retention. So you know, if a product is missing a particular feature, you can take somebody in professional services or a pre-sales engineer, and they can actually build a prototype and solve some of the feature lack in the product. And so we often encourage companies to do that, even if
0: they operate those professional services teams at negative gross margin. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do have to ask, obviously, I speak to a lot of SaaS investors today, also with the fund, co-investing-wise. And often when kind of discussing an SMB opportunity, they have this inherent thesis that you're always going to have higher churn rates due to SMB is going out of business far more frequently. Do you think that kind of inherent bias is really fair? And, and how do you analyze it?
1: I think it's true that SMBs do tend to go out of business more quickly. But I think you got to look at SMB business the way that you look at consumer, which is the payback periods have to be much shorter. So when we look at it, Redpoint Invest in both enterprise and consumer, when we're looking at a consumer business, like a direct-to-consumer business, we're looking for payback periods in the three- to four-month range. If you're looking at a, a SaaS company that's selling to the enterprise, you're really looking at payback periods that are somewhere in the 12 to 20 24-month range. And so in the SMB, they've got to be sub a year just because of the, the cost of customer acquisition the payback dynamics do look much more like consumer. That's really important. I think the other thing is when you're selling into the SMB, you really want to be part of a core function that doesn't go away. And so there are a lot of companies that sell into the SMB who sell marketing products and those are products kind of ebb and flow with different cycles. It sometimes can be difficult to show ROI. And so there tends to be a lot of churn in those kinds of products. The contrast would be if you're selling back office software to an SMB like Zero, like an Expensify, the churn rate zero are going to be substantially lower because without you, the business is going to have a much harder time operating. From our perspective, you'd rather be back of house at the SMB rather than front of house.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And uh, it goes to that uh, VC orgasm statement, which is a system of record, so to speak. Exactly. Uh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I would love though, to kind of switch tax on retention from logo retention to net dollar retention. What were the discoveries in terms of net dollar retention from the study, Tom.
1: Yeah, this was surprising. So we look at net dollar retention, 110% net dollar retention means the cohort of customers that we signed up last year are spending 1.1 times as much this year. And what we found is that the top quartile of respondents expand accounts by 120% or more. You've definitely seen that in a lot of the public companies. If you look at like a new relic or a service now or a box, those accounts particularly the larger ones in boxes case 5K and above, you're seeing like 120 to 130% net dollar expansion. And so that's where the data suggested startups really be focusing. The surprising bit for me was if you break that down by looking enterprise mid market and SMB, you find that the enterprise accounts are the ones that actually have much better NDR than in the mid market or the SMB. I would have thought, you know, a lot of the SMB companies that we've seen, they tend to have really terrific NDR. We've got one company that's doing something like 160 to 170% NDR in the SMB. And that's predominantly because they're targeting companies, that smaller companies that tend to be growing really quickly. And when you think about a SaaS company targeting enterprise, 170% account expansion on annual basis seems to be a pretty tall order. But what we do find is that it's easier to expand for most companies in the enterprise because you can go from department to department and then eventually enterprise license agreement where you're selling across the enterprise. So Mm -hmm. just to kind of summarize all that, what we found is in the enterprise, it's easier to retain logos and it's also much more common to expand them in the 120 to 140 percent range. Whereas in the SMB, you're going to see substantially higher churn rates on the logo basis and then also about 40 percent see 80 to 100 percent NDR. That's clearly influenced by the fact that they're losing
0: lots of customers. Now, again, another unfair question, but when we speak about NDR and 170, in in some cases as you said there, in terms of the holy grail question for customer success, how do you think about responsibility with regards to upsell? Does it lie with customer success or does it lie with sales? What's your thinking on that?
1: Yeah, the thinking, well, kind of what we've seen in industry has changed a lot, and I think where we're ending up is, particularly in the mid-market and above, it's the AE's responsibility to sell the account, it's the customer success manager's responsibility to keep the account happy, create an account plan, improve the NPS, potentially set them up to be a reference customer. And it's now falling again back on the AE to do the expansion. And one part of it has to do with the fact that there tend to be different personalities that gravitate to each job. CSMs tend to have different personalities and different desires than an account executive. I was talking to a CEO recently who said, who tried to take a CSM and put him into an AE role. And what they found is the CSM continued to want to have ongoing conversations and keep building the relationship where the AE felt more pressure for time and wanted to drive the conversation to a decision about whether or not to expand. And so that may be broadly true. The second reason that we're starting to see this kind of demarcation between CSM and AE, particularly for the upsell, has to do with compensation. At the beginning, maybe two or three years ago, there were lots of different ways of compensating a CSM. You could do it purely on some of those softer metrics like customer satisfaction, that kind of stuff. Or you could do it based on an account expansion NDR multiplier. And what we found is, or what the industry has gravitated to, is we'd rather compensate Compensate CSMs on a much more salaried basis. Maybe 15% of the compensation is variable and goal-based, whereas the AEs who are already kind of 50-50 on a full OT plan, 50% is the salary and then 50% is the commissions. They tend to lend themselves much better to the account expansion. I would love to see, and I haven't seen, but I would love to see a study you know, side-by-side side of people running experiments between CSMs doing upsell and AEs doing upsell. And I think the key variables there would be the time to close the upsell, and then the second would be the, the amount of the upsell. There's one downside to setting it up this Way, which is the risk that the AE oversells the account before the transition to the CSM. That's something that every company's got to manage separately.
0: No, absolutely do one, one thing that I go back and forward on is kind of AEs and their relationship with renewals in terms of should they get commission for renewals? What are your thoughts on that? Because it's often one that founders ask.
1: Yeah, there's a really good book. Uh, Mark Robert's book talks about the four different commission structures that they that AEs have for renewals. And they went through a bunch of different ones. There's two questions, I think. The first is do you we're Quota at the same rate for renewal as you do for new business. In other words, if, if I'm an AE and I book a $100,000 deal, $100,000 new customer versus $100,000 expansion on an existing customer, does that retire my quota at an equivalent rate? The thing there is in the beginning, well, what we end up seeing is you see a lot of companies actually value new ACV much more, say 2X more, 3X more, 5X more, 10X more than renewal. Because at the beginning, what you really want to do as a startup in order to have a successful growth and fundraise is try to maximize the number of logos that you have. And then the other thing that's really kind of a key part of this is that it's way easier to expand the customer than it is to find a new customer. And so in order to show that repeatability to investors, it's really critical to be able to expand. What you do end up having in the longer term is you kind of section the sales team. So you're going to have a sales team that's going to go after named accounts or the very largest customers. Because let's say you land a departmental deal with someone like an Apple or Google or Salesforce or an Oracle. You really want an account manager who's going to understand or an AE who's really going to understand the dynamics of that account and how expand and grow within that account because obviously it's going to be a strategic account for your business forever
0: no i i totally agree with you there in terms of kind of that segmentation and really honing in on that customer and their needs on the mechanics of the trials so to speak though i often have many founders ask me about kind of optimal structures and incentives behind the trials themselves can i ask tom what are the four ways to limit trials and what did the results suggest when considering which limit performs best for conversion so we looked at
1: four different limits the first is a usage-based trial number of API calls, like Catwilio. The second is a time-based trial, 14-day trials, the most common. The third is a seat-based trial, two free seats. If you want the third one, you have to upgrade to be paid. And then the fourth is features. The most famous one is Slack, so unlimited users unless you want to search of a particular capacity. What we found is that time is by far, even across all price points, is by far the most common. Roughly about 60% of respondents are actually using a time-based trial. And there's a reason for that. It turns out that the median conversion rate of time-based trials is higher. It turns out that time and usage-based trials have a statistically equivalent conversion rate of something in the 10 to 12% range, whereas feature and seat-based trials have a conversion rate that's half of that. Those numbers are actually independent of price points. They're also independent of buyer. What we found in the survey is that if you're selling to marketing or legal or HR or sales, they all actually buy and behave in the same way, irrespective of price point and department. So our conclusion was, if you're going to do a free trial, you really should be doing either a time-bound free trial or a usage-based free trial.
0: So we should be doing a time-bound free trial. What does that actually look like then? in terms of what effect does trial length have on conversion rate? How should we think about that?
1: It's totally independent. So it turns out the conversion rate of trials, you know, we looked at 7-day, 14-day, 21-day, 30-day plus. It turns out if you have a salesperson calling the people who are doing the free trial, they all converted about 15%. And so if you're doing a time-bound free trial, the best thing that you can do is shorten it because your conversion rate is independent of length. And so our hypothesis, which we weren't able to prove, is when somebody signs up for the free trial, that's the point of maximum intent. That's the point in their buyer. Journey when they're most likely to buy, and so whatever you can do to help them in a shorter period of time buy in a comfortable way, that's only going to benefit you.
0: So if that's in terms of kind of independence of the actual length of the trial. What role then does the salesperson have in terms of its impact on increasing conversion, or is it again independent?
1: Well, we found that the salespeople typically three x the conversion rates. We looked at unassisted conversion, which is no salesperson touches the lead, and then assisted conversion, and you look at the difference, and it's on the fiftieth percentile. a 4% unassisted conversion rate. And then a salesperson or an assisted conversion is about 15.5%. So there's basically a 3X difference. And if you can paint this picture in your mind, what we found is that the conversion rates of unassisted can follow a power law. And then the conversion rates of assisted, if you look at the distribution of different respondents, it's much more even, kind of a uniform distribution. And what that means is that if you're an unassisted product, there are some companies that have exceptional product market fit that have really honed their funnel. And so they're getting really terrific, like 10, 12, 15% unassisted conversion, entirely product driven, but there are a very small number of companies who can achieve that. Whereas if you're a company that has say less strong or less perfect product market fit, salespeople actually help you smooth your performance and actually allow you to get much better conversion rates. And so one of the conclusions from the survey was that if your price point allows for it, which is typically something like a 10 or a 12K ACV, you really should
0: be hiring AEs to call your leads. Absolutely. Can I ask just in terms of adding those first AEs, as many uh, first time founders and kind of scaling founders are. How do you think about when the right time to add those first AEs is?
1: Yeah, I think this founder is going to do the first, say, 10 to 20 sales. And then after that, I think it's typically time to hire an AE. And you have a decision point about what kind of an AE you want to hire. And the way that we think about it is there are people who like to solve problems and there are people who like to execute game plans. And so what you really want to find in the very beginning is people who want to solve problems because the founder is going to have led the first 10 or 20 sales. They're going to have discovered some of the techniques, but the playbook and the game plan for mechanism that sales process really hasn't been established and so your first AE or your first two AEs are going to be responsible for doing that. They're also going to need to do things like build their own field marketing materials, build the case, understand the accounts and even the battle cards like the competitive dynamics between one product and another. As opposed to somebody who's come out of a really great sales force, has been given a playbook
0: and can execute that really well and really quickly. You really want the first. In terms of, kind of the pricing that these AEs are selling, I'm always permanently, honestly quite stuck actually Tom, because I always think that you don't want to discourage users from using your product. But if usage discouraged product use because obviously you have kind of limits on the usage itself, seats can be shared pretty easily within organizations. How do you think about maybe the right variable pricing structure, given that really you could shoot a hole through pretty much all of them?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can. You know, you had Brad Birnbaum who is a founder who I work with on the show. He's the CEO of Customer, which is a really fast-growing customer support platform based in New York. And he was talking about how in his business, he was trying to change the industry in two different ways. The first Thing he was trying to do is innovate on the product and we can talk about all the differentiation that they're building there that's meaningful and important. And then the second is he was going to market trying to change pricing. And what he found in trying to change the pricing is that customers didn't have a pain point around the pricing. They had a budget, they had a purchasing process, they discussed it with procurement. So they wanted product differentiation, they didn't want the pricing differentiation. And so in most cases where you're selling into an existing category with an existing budget line item, innovating on pricing is probably going to slow the sales process down because you've got to not only educate the buyer, on the differentiation in the product we also have to educate the buyer why it's beneficial for them to change the pricing model there's some small subset of use cases you know i'm thinking about splunk or other places where you've got other areas in the market where you've got one very large incumbent you know mixed panel is an example of this one very large incumbent that everybody in the market perceives to be really expensive and so people want to buy differently because you've got a hegemony there and so differentiating on pricing is actually something that's going to resonate with the buyer but it's just like the product before you want to jump in and try to differentiate on pricing it's really important to have conversation with lots of different customers and I think the questions or the feedback that you're going to get that you're going to suggest that it's time for an innovation in pricing is it's really expensive as my business grows or the incentives of the vendor are not aligned with mine that's a
0: pretty clear signal that people are ready to think about buying on a different metric absolutely there almost no stronger signal I do and I love that episode with Brad he was fantastic to have on you did mention though assisted and unassisted two passion points of mine which is one of the many reasons I'm probably still single but (laughs) (laughs) I I would love to discuss that. And this is, again, insanely unfair of me, but considering it's round two, I think I can. So what were the discoveries on optimal targets for unassisted conversions? And then uh, this is the unfair part. As an investor today, what benchmark makes Tom very excited?
1: (laughs) Well, what we found is like a 50th percentile for unassisted conversion is 4%. And like I said, it follows a power law. So 75th percentile is 12%, but it's quite rare to see that. So I, I don't think that's the right metric that people should be aiming for. I think in the 4% to 5% unassisted range, is pretty incredible. And then the other thing to really consider is the sample size. So you can have really great conversion rates on a very small number of people, but that's not nearly as meaningful. If you saw a company with a 6 to 7% unassisted conversion rate that was growing something like 15% or more a month on a super capital efficient base, I'd you know, be falling over myself to invest in that business.
0: Well, that was a great answer. No, I'm, I'm thrilled I asked that one. <laughs> well, I, I can apply it to assisted now. On the flip side, I'll here. And again, what would get you falling over yourself to invest in my SaaS startup?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So here, 50th percentile of assisted conversion is 15 and a half percent. 75th is about 30 percent. There's some nuance here because some people uh, measure conversion from different points in the cycle. There's stage one and stage two, you know, SQL versus MQL. But if you see a company closing something like 30 to 40 percent of their leads from the MQL level or even the SQL level, that's really attractive, particularly if you're combining that with a shorter sales cycle. So anything under 90 Day sales cycle with a 30% conversion rate from a sales accepted lead. It just means you've got a really great product market fit. And the other thing that's really critical and it's a question that I ask in almost every pitch meeting is how do you create urgency in the sales process? You know, a lot of products that don't really lend themselves to a sales pitch that says, hey, you need to buy this now. But if you can create that urgency, then you're going to benefit from both of those two things. Really short, short sales cycles and the second is a much higher conversion rate from
0: uh, a sales accepted lead. Can I ask, what's the best answer that you've heard? And you don't have to say the name if confidential but to that how do you create urgency in the sales cycle
1: well recently we've been seeing lots of different companies that are trying to solve regulatory requirements like the GDPR and all that kind of stuff and so a lot of them say we create there's this May 15th date and that that was a really great answer for a while until May 15th had passed and that regulatory discontinuity kind of went away a lot of the times founders answer there's a 10x ROI story that's really important those are probably the two most common answers I mean outside the regulatory one it's probably much more around ROI or the other one that tends to be really important is around visibility. Like um, what we're starting to see, as you're talking about before, Harry's these kind of systems of record. Now, almost every team within the company has got a system of record. And so whoever the C-level or the VP-level executive who presides over that department, they want to have the metrics to report to the management team. And if they're blind, then you can go to them and say, hey, I've got these metrics to help. And so that's a good catalyst.
0: No, I love that on the visibility. The final element though, that I do want to discuss before my favorite, the quickfire, you mentioned kind of the <laughs> sample sizes there and maybe- Maybe how that impacts, so to speak, in terms of both unassisted and assisted. In terms of kind of scoring, now we have all these leads. It's conventional wisdom in terms of efficiency that it can be gained from scoring these leads effectively. How do you advise founders on the right way to score leads today?
1: So this was really interesting. So I have a machine learning background. We did lots of lead scoring at Google. We had this internal tool called Glenn Gary that did a lot of lead scoring on the advertiser side. And we always thought it to be super impactful. But what we found is using the data that we had, we found that lead scoring particularly in the enterprise price point so 15k and above or mid-market and enterprise is actually a negative signal so if you're selling to a small account lead scoring provides no marginal information supposedly given the aggregate data that we have provides no marginal information over how sales people are filtering through the leads today at the enterprise it's actually a negative signal you're actually filtering out leads that could be really good accounts that you're not calling because of the scoring and in particular we were focused on activity scoring which means using engagement metrics within the product during the free trial to determine and assess whether or not you should be calling on this lead and the hypothesis is that we had here is that mid-market enterprise accounts, people who are spending 15K or more, are not going to use the product in the same way that an SMB would. They're not going to use the product the way that a consumer would. And so, you know, they're going to use the product for five or 10 minutes, then go talk and build consensus internally, talk to the procurement teams, try to get budget. And so they may not be so active in the product during the free trial, but if you disqualify them out or don't emphasize them, then you may be missing on a material revenue opportunity. And what we found is if you're looking at 50 to 150K price points, the conversion rate when companies were not using activity to score leads is about 4X higher higher than when they are using and so it's something to look at on a pro company basis but i think it's something pretty important to look at
0: i want to move into my favorite though as i said uh, the quick fire round so tom you know the drill here i say a short statement you give me your immediate thoughts are you ready to rock and roll let's do it so your favorite book and why
1: i just read kai fu lee's ai superpowers i think it's one of the most insightful books on how the chinese startup economy has evolved and how it's different from the u.s and also what a future world could look like between u.s chips and and US AI versus Chinese chips and Chinese AI.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Totally with you. <laughs> I just, I, I, sorry, I just, I just had a guest on the show that said Fifty Shades of Grey, and uh,
1: oh no, man, <laughs> I remember that one.
0: <laughs> no, no, I just uh, sorry, it was very different to your suggestion. <laughs> What's your biggest weakness, and what are you doing to improve
1: it, Tom? I think my biggest weakness is prioritization. I like to do lots and lots of different things. In, one of the things I talk about on the blog is focus them. So 2019 for me is a year of focus and the Pareto
0: rule, 80-20. Why are AI agencies a powerful new go-to-market for startups?
1: So in the recruiting world, 5% of spend is spent on tools, 95% is spent on recruiting. In the recruiting world, the 95% is actually commanded by agencies. But a lot of those agencies don't want to buy the tools in order to kind of become the next generation. And so what we're starting to see is a bunch of startups in every category of agencies that are masquerading as classic agencies, but powered being powered by AI. And so the trade that they're making is they're depressing the gross margin a little, but they're actually increasing their TAM by a factor of 10 or 20 X. And so that's a super compelling place for us to invest. I love
0: that. Tell me Tom, what keeps you up at night? We
1: have five small children. <laughs> <laughs> and so keeping them what keeps me up at night? I think figuring out how
0: to get in front of the next great founder. No, I'm totally with you. I absolutely uh permanently on my mind. Tell me Tom, what's your superpower?
1: My partners tell me my superpower is taking in lots of information and being able to summarize it really quickly.
0: I'm very envious of you. Uh, <laughs> why is hiring a player coach fraught with risk? Okay, so
1: lots of startups at the early stage want to do, there's kind of this classic mistake, which is, hey, listen, we've got a really great performing account executive or somebody who's in CS and we want to promote them to lead the team. I've seen this time and time again and I've talked to many different VPs of sales at some of the most successful startups and none of them have ever seen it work. Not to say that it can't work, but it's really challenging. And the main reason is it's a very big jump to go from an individual contributor to, to becoming a manager in any function and in, startup world, when you're doing that, what it means is that the business is starting to grow really well. And most of the time, the startup doesn't have the time for that person to understand the role, grow into the role and be successful in the role all in the span of a quarter or two. And so you're just asking way too much of that person. So it's way better to hire somebody or find somebody who's done it before to train those people. And then as the company scales, train those people and help them grow rather than do it
0: when it's kind of in the critical path to the business. Now, the final one, what's the most recent publicly announced investment, Tom? And why did you get so excited?
1: So, we just announced an investment in Mattermost. It's an open source Slack product, a communication
0: platform that we've been tracking. I've been tracking
1: for about 15 months. I'm really excited about this company for a couple of different reasons. The first is cost of customer acquisition and software has been increasing monotonically over the last 10 years. And so, we're looking for new forms of customer acquisition. We think open source in the application tier could be one. The second thing is we're noticing a difference in architecture when SaaS companies go to market. So, if you think about the first wave of software, your client server architecture, the second wave was Salesforce putting the application in the database in the cloud so that the customer didn't have to run it. Now, with these advances of all these regulations, what we're starting to see is companies who want the SaaS vendor to operate the application, but they want to operate the database, whether that's in the VPC or on-prem. And so Mattermost is architected to go after the market this way. And then the third most compelling part of this business is just the growth rate and the capital efficiency. You know, the company is probably, you know, has more revenue than most series Bs that we see, but had raised about 3 million. And so the kind of the growth dynamics within the messaging market are really terrific and then the fourth is the team just levying everybody
0: who's working at Mattermost my word that must have been a long investment memo <laughs> but,
1: uh, I, <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> I fucking hate investment memo <laughs> I was just
1: reading this book called uh, In Defense of Troublemakers have you read this book Harry it's no, all about contrarians and they, ta- they talk about this hedge fund that whenever they make an investment they have to write an investment memo for and an investment memo against and so you probably not like working there
0: I am not doing <laughs> that fund uh, <laughs> uh, Please, if you find an AI for investment memo creation, I will personally double down on it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Tom, I knew this was going to be fun. I didn't quite expect it to be this much fun. So thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much, Harry. This was a ton of fun. I don't think I've spoken so much or so fast in a long
0: time. <laughs> And I'm not sure I've had quite as much fun on an episode for quite a long time. So a huge thank you to Tom for that. I really do so appreciate it. And if you'd like to see more from Tom, you can find him on Twitter at ttungers. Likewise, you must check out his blog at tomtungers.com. It would also be fantastic to see you behind the scenes here at SASTA. You can see us on Instagram at hstebbins 1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, if there's one thing I suck at, it's organisation. And that's always around expenses for me. Keeping receipts, losing them, taking photos months later, oh, it's a nightmare. And then we started using Plio, and it enables employees to buy what they need for work, with no fuss and no more out-of-pocket purchases. Plus, you take the photo of the receipt in real time, so you don't even need to keep the receipt. And the design is beautiful. Genuinely, it makes it quite fun. Clearly, I need to get out more, given I just said that. But don't take my word for it. More than 5,000 European companies use Plio, from Vina Media to Voi and Byron, and you can check them out today. And for SaaS to listeners only, Plio is saying, hey, go on your next business lunch, paid for by Plio, and they give 50 pounds on the Plio card to trial. Genuinely, I absolutely love it, and you can check it out today at plio.io forward slash saster. However, metrics are key to every business, and misreported metrics are damaging. Missed revenue opportunities and multiplying process inefficiencies. Does that sound familiar? Well, everyone in your go to market org is punching above their weight, yet no needle is moving nearly as fast as it should. Each morning, you wake up with the three big questions increasingly hard to answer revenue questions, that is. How do we sustain the revenue we're bringing in? How do we identify more avenues to grow revenue, and how can we get real-time visibility into the cracks and fissures of the revenue engine? If that's you, it's exceedingly likely that your revenue infrastructure and processes are headed towards a dreaded natural conclusion, or rather a tangle, a huge bowl of sass spaghetti. That diagnosis screams of a revenue operations problem. You can head on over to chargebee.com to learn more about how to battle these inefficiencies in your revenue engine, and if you want to untangle your revenue operations with Chargebee, use harry25 at checkout and get 25 percent off your plan. That's Harry 2525. And finally thanks to my friends at WePay. Let me introduce you to another super cool player in the space Invaluable. The world's leading online marketplace to fine art, antiques and collectibles. Auction houses, galleries and dealers use Invaluable to grow their businesses and connect more people around the world with the things they love. And it works with more than 5,000 auction houses globally including Sotheby's and Phillips. and Sotheby's is actually using them as their core technology partner for online bidding on all of its auctions and you can learn more stay at Invaluable Com. But you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you some phenomenal episodes in 2020. Have a great new year.